Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome back to God's Planning. My name is Father Gregory Pine, joined here by Father Bonaventure Chapman. How are things? Yeah, not bad. <laughs> not bad. Yeah, summer, everything this summer with COVID feels like uh, it's kind of like a everything's a Saturday or a Friday or a Thursday. Mm. Never know exactly what day it is. Yeah, it seems like so. Yeah, we mark the passing of time by the traffic that we endure, and at like on Friday, you have, you feel like the corporate effect of five straight days of frustration. Says somebody who works in the place where he lives. Um, but yeah, in COVID time, all things are all things are up for grabs. Things are still strange. <laughs> Um, so here we are, uh, just coming to you from Washington, D.C., from the offices of the Thomistic Institute. And uh, we, in this episode, are going to take on the theme of race in America, the hard and seemingly impossible conversation. Uh, so uh, kind of like the opening salvo or the opening, I guess, description of what we intend to do is uh, an admission of uh, part competence and part incompetence. So uh, it's not to say that we intend to solve problem or like offer the definitive solution as to how one can navigate the issue, but we're like looking for conversation points, uh, resources, so as to promote, yeah, uh, communion among those involved. Um, so maybe we can just start with a little bit about appreciating why it's difficult to have the conversation. I think a lot of people have stumbled on the difficulty in the past uh, few weeks and months. Um, or maybe have been surprised to find it as difficult as they have. Um, so what do you think are reasons why discussing race in America is such a hard problem? Yeah, it's, and I think it's important that we distinguish between a hard conversation and an impossible conversation. Mm-hmm. It seems like some people think that race is an impossible conversation to have and shut down. But I think we want to talk about how it's hard, but it only seems impossible. So, I mean, the hardness of it, I guess, is what we were familiar with. First off, that racism is real. Like it's not, we're not talking about like unicornism or something or anything that's imaginary. Like it's, it's real and real in a personal sense. I mean, I don't think everyone needs to declare, hey, I'm all, I'm a racist or I was a racist this time. But uh, the fact that we as human beings tend to like people who look like us or act like us. I mean, this is true for middle school cafeterias, um, you know, anywhere that it's possible to me easily to stumble into us versus them kind of mentality. And then once you have an us versus them, then you can, it can turn into something where it's, we get more and they get less. So I think the first part is a personal reflection that it's, it's possible to, that, that all of us have a tendency or at least a, a, a potential to be and stumble in this way. I think that's, that makes it hard because then it admits well, everyone agrees, great, agrees rationally racism, racism is wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. We all feel like this. It should, you should not judge someone by the content, by the color of their skin, by the content of their character. So the first thing is the personal, I think, that makes it, 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 it makes people uncomfortable to enter a conversation where they might be accused of being racist, mm-hmm. one, and then that it <laughs> might have some, like it, there, might be, there might be some truth to it, maybe. Um, yeah. How about, so um, in like a specifically American sense, I know some people have had the experience of traveling to other countries, uh, which might be less uh, racially heterogeneous. Like the United States is, mm-hmm. is very uh, ethnically, racially, racially diverse, um, perhaps not so much as like Canada, for instance, but very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people will go to other places and they'll have very different experience of race relations. And they'll be like, wait a second, this seems a lot worse or different. Like what about America? Um, is peculiar. Maybe just like 
the history of racism in America? Like, what is it about our particular experience which makes the like makes the question complicated? Yeah, it, I think, and I'm um, here. We are. We're going to opine on things we're not experts on. But mm-hmm. it is true that not only is there an existential issue for everyone, but in America, particularly, there's an historical aspect of the fact that there's slavery, right? I mean, spoiler alert: uh, American history includes slavery, and um, Fought a, a civil war was involved in this in, in a fashion, but no one can contend that slavery didn't exist in our country. Uh, and that me- that means all sorts of things, but it means that the history of our country has this was originally what people, some people call it the original sin. Mm-hmm. Now, how deeply, how far back these sort of things, what are the ramifications from that? And what do you do about that? Those are the part of this conversation that we have to have. But the first thing we have to do and why it makes it hard is admitting that there is an aspect of America uh, way back in the founding and then developing um, that people were treated incredibly poorly while people were enslaved and in in ways that we would never, I mean, no one would want to do that today. So just admitting that, that there was this historical and has ramifications today experience in America makes it more worse. In England, for instance, where I was, I was studying for a couple of years, um, they didn't have slave, they had colonialism and they had slavery in the colonies, but they didn't have the massive amounts of slavery that we had in the States. In mm-hmm. They didn't have that in, in their, their, their uh, England itself. So it doesn't have the same purchase on them. It makes it different to them because mm-hmm. they don't, they're more homogenous. Um, but we, yeah, we had, we had an, uh, a number of, yeah, we had a, a, num- a number of years, many years of slavery on our, on our soil. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's, it's fascinating too, what like, time does to an issue because not only does it make the make the offense more acute or exacerbate the harm done but it also bakes it into your life um so the fact that um like racism was a part of america's history from the early 17th century to like the mid 19th century means that disentangling it from america becomes all the more fraught and complicated um so it means that yeah like there's there's a whole historiographical dimension like there's a there are different narratives uh, on what slavery has meant for America. And you need to, you know, kind of contend with those and making sense of the part that it played. Um, how about like, okay, transitioning now from the historical to the more kind of existential. <clears throat> most people, mo- most people aren't necessarily thinking of, um, you know, some of the, maybe some of the first things that we described when they go to have a conversation, but they do come up short when they are maybe, maybe inclined to say one thing, but realize that it can be misinterpreted. Like what are some, what are some existential reasons why it's hard to talk about? I think one of the most difficult parts is because there's an asymmetry of experience. And this is true across the board for all sorts of issues is that um, when talking about, about racism in America, it's possible that your interlocutor might have a different experience than you have. So if you're a white person, you're talking to a black person, it, they're going to experience it differently than you have. And so to, to someone who hasn't experienced race, someone who has experienced racism in all sorts of ways, job market, education, what have you, um, they're going to think that you're not as sympathetic. And so when you come across and say something like, hey, I, I'm, we're on the same plane here. Like we feel, um, I can speak as, 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 a, as a white man, that I feel like I don't have the same experience at all with slavery and racism, of course. And so it feels like I'm behind, in a sense, in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, that's true with any sort of experience. If someone has a terrible uh, thing happen to them or something, Mm -hmm. and you try to comfort that person, you empathize with them, 
there's only so far you can go if you haven't had the, if you haven't shared the same experience. It's not to say that you can't actually empathize with them, mm-hmm. of course, because you're still a human being. Yeah. But it does mean that there's something mis- I don't know missing out. Um, and I think that's that makes this conversation harder because some people have experienced this entirely differently in dramatic ways, whereas other people in the conversation haven't. Yeah, and I think a lot of people they they recognize that. You know, you'll you'll often hear people say something like you know, well, I have an experience, but one of my best friends has, or, you know, I'm, I, I don't necessarily um, like share this dimension of your life, but I know people who have, or, you know, speaking out of ignorance, but with a desire to understand, you know, like people will kind of try to get out ahead of that. Um, but there is still a recognition, not to say that one cannot talk to another, but there is a recognition that it'll, it'll always be different. And that has to also be part of the conversation, not, not so as to insist upon it as an obstacle never to be overcome. Uh, but so as to say, there is an obstacle. And if we are to overcome it, we need to address that there is an obstacle. Yeah, to recognize that, yeah, people do experience things differently. And that, uh, especially racism, is something that you might not have experience with. And just to bring that into the conversation, it, again, it doesn't stop the conversation. It shouldn't stop the conversation. But it can make it more difficult uh, for either for either party or any party involved. Okay, maybe maybe a final point too. I um, I'm no advocate of golden ageism, you know, to mm-hmm. say that like things were better in the past and now they're especially terrible. Um, I think that uh, we've always experienced political polarization in the United States. If you look at like campaign speeches from the 19th century, pretty pretty wild, pretty you hard, know, yeah. um, you know, hard hitting things. But yeah. but I think a lot of people's experience of the 21st century is that uh, it's pretty polarized. So what does that do to the issue? Well, I think there's, again, it sets up an us versus them kind of mentality. I think people in America, maybe it's because our political parties are set up in two, we, we have a bipolar system, as opposed to other European countries where you have a bunch of different parties. But for whatever reason, we tend to think in terms of us versus them, either blue or red, and then it becomes this kind of absolute, absolute dichotomy. Is there right and wrong, uh, you know, black or white in all sorts of ways? So I think especially today where people are unsympathetic to discussion initially in political stuff and think it's all something like a power grab. I think it means that the polarization makes it more difficult to have a conversation because you're already going into the conversation, assuming what the other person believes about X, Y, and Z. And that might not be true at all. It's just a thing that we're getting used to because we're used to sound bites and extremely partisan politics currently. Again, not that it weren't partisan politics before, but it does seem, or at least it feels uh, today that, well, it doesn't feel like we're reunited in any sort of fashion. Whether we're less united before, who knows? We, um, but it makes it difficult to have a conversation, I think. Okay, so those are some uh, good ways to kind of describe, at least at the outset, why the conversation is hard. I think a lot of people make the jump from saying it is hard to it is impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, We don't want to go ahead and say it's impossible. We have hope that the conversation can actually be hosted um, and can actually, you know, uh, yield some fruit. Uh, So, so let's, that's like kind of transition now. Like why does it seem impossible? And um, yeah, maybe just, just give a sense for that. I think the main, um, the main thing is it seems impossible because conversations require rational discourse. They require reason. And today, this is, so this is where Dominicans kind of do, we make our, 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 our money by making abstract points, but this is an abstract point, I suppose, that reason is not something that people appreciate today. There's, well, I should say there's a denial of reason in the public square, and mm-hmm. I think it comes in kind of two forms. And if you deny the validity of reason in the public square, then you can't have 
a conversation in any fashion. And we need to have a conversation about racism. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're going to have a conversation with racism, it needs to be rational. But there are these two, I, I think there are these two tendencies to deny reason. One's motivism, and then we'll call the other one, say, powerism or something. Emotivism, of course, is it comes from John, uh, sorry, Alistair McIntyre's work, or at least this is the phrase he works. And you're kind of especially on that. So would you want to give a quick, like, what is the emotive, what is emotivism as a denial of rational discourse? What kind of, what, what people expect from that? Yeah, I think, um, so when he talks about emotivism, uh, McIntyre's indebted, I guess, to like C.L. Stevenson, uh, the kind of breakdown of the early conversation, which was very sanguine about the use of reason. Um, and there was a kind of ongoing debate as to whether reason was more grounded in the kind of empirical facts or was more grounded in uh, the kind of free exercise of reason itself. And eventually that, um, yeah, that debate stumbles and falls and what you have is this kind of despair. Uh, but to set up his description before getting into it, uh, just kind of straight out, um, he will like paint this picture at the beginning of his, his famous work, After Virtue, which is published in 1981 and which is very influential in uh, kind of getting virtue ethics back into the conversation in contemporary philosophical ethics. But um, he takes this scene, he actually borrows it from a science fiction uh, novel by, um, uh, what's the gentleman's name? Walter Miller, um, mm -hmm. yeah. Canticle for Leibowitz. Yeah. And um, the story tells a tale of this religious order who is responsible for transmitting the riches of uh, Western civilization. Um, and it, it kind of tracks this religious order through a series of different apocalyptic events. So they safeguard all these books, they recover the knowledge in those books, and then some, you know, grade A cataclysm takes place, like a nuclear holocaust or something like that. And then they go underground and then they resurface after, you know, things are not as terrible as they once were. Um, but there, there's, all, there's this ongoing cycle of destruction and recovery, destruction and recovery. And when McIntyre talks about discourse in the present day and age, he says, like, we're in a period of uh, post-destruction. Uh, so you, you have these coherent traditions. So you might have people that were saying one thing and you have people who are saying another thing and they're operating from different principles. And those principles were played out uh, to their conclusions within the context of a tradition. But all of that knowledge was exploded. And then what we have now are just kind of random principles, random conclusions, all kind of floating to the surface of the earth in the aftermath. And, and we just kind of grab from the air whatever we can lay to hand, and then we cobble together these arguments. But the problem is, we're not actually using reason, we're just um, appearing as if to use reason. What we're actually contending for is our preferences. And this is where emotivism comes in. Really, all there is, is preference. And what I argue for, or what I deploy persuasion to contend for, or what I, you know, whatever, you know, all of it is basically a kind of veiled way of just trying to get others to think what I feel. Um, and you know that your feeling or you know that your emotive choice, as it were, is successful when it, when it gets other people to agree with you. Mm -hmm. So basically, you have this strongly felt opinion. It hasn't really been sussed out. You have a strongly felt opinion and you're just trying to get other people to think the same thing. And you do so by whatever means necessary, one of which means is argument. So it's really insidious because it looks like it's argument. Mm -hmm. It looks like it's a rational exchange. But truth be told, it's just like a form of suasion or pressure mm -hmm. or et cetera. Yeah, it's a breakdown of conversation and, and, and communication because you're not actually communicating on a similar plane. You're just trying to get someone else to feel the way you feel and treating that as if that's an argument for something and for whether something's right or wrong. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So, yeah, I mean, that's a basic sketch of motivism, but this, this term that you've coined, powerism, what is that? Well, should we, should we take a quick break before we get to the next powerism session? That, that, my friend, is an excellent idea. We'll take a quick break and be right back. This is God's Planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. And we're back. Thanks so much for sticking with us here on Godsplaining. We're in the context or we're, we're in the middle of a conversation about race in America, uh, what we've dubbed the hard and seemingly impossible conversation. And recall, just to set things up, we talked at the outset about why it's hard to have the conversation, uh, but rather than despair of the conversation, we're acknowledging why it seems to be impossible so that we can move towards, uh, at least gesturing towards ways that it it is possible or, or reasons for which to think that it is possible and maybe the beginning of that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about why then it seems seemingly impossible, we just described emotivism. Uh, and now the hope is that we could get into powerism. Powerism, yeah. I actually don't know. There's got to be a better <clears> word for this. But, <laughs> um, but powerism, it kind of partakes of motive. So these are both ways that reason is denied and breaks and breaks down discourse. So if you don't believe in reason, then you're not going to be able to have rational discourse. You're not going to have real conversation. You're just going to be... Uh, explaining to other people how you feel or explain how they should feel or something. And that's emotivism is one example. This, the other one, I think I call it powerism, even though that's again, stupid, stupid name for it is that reasons are not emotions, but reasons when you see them in the public discourse are actually just veiled power plays. This is something who uh, comes from instead of uh, Alistair McIntyre, this comes from Michel Foucault, or at least some of his ideas who actually likens in many ways, but his, one of his big emphasis in his study of, of how rational discourse proceeds is that very often rational discourse is used for power. So it's used for, so it's not for pure knowledge sake, like disinterested knowledge as we would think, but his claim was that in many cases, uh, rational discourse is used to implement a particular plan that's used strategically, that it has a, a sort of, violence to it or something. Now, all this language you can see gets filtered through the kind of popular media and Twitter and things so that people say power is all there is. Um, his, he's actually has this very sophisticated notion of power. So we're not, we're not gonna make claims about whether, whether this is Foucault or not, but it is, I think a tendency in conversations in America today that if you try to reason with someone, everyone kind of suspects, or there's a suspicion that you're actually not reasoning for pure rational, you know, the good, you could say, but you're just trying to gain power. You're mm-hmm. trying to be in control. I mean, this, we're used to this with politics as well. So when you hear a politician speaking today, we don't think, oh, wow, he is just, or she is just implementing a great rational program that is totally disinterested. And if he even hurt her, but helped the nation, she would be inclined towards it or hurt her party, but was good for the nation, she would be inclined towards it. No, we think, okay, this person is deploying, they're trying to hide behind their rhetoric a move to get grasp power so they can control things. The problem with that is if you assume that everything, every time you use rational discourse and conversation is actually just a veiled power play, then you won't trust anything the person says. You'll always be seeing that other person as a strategist and you won't be able to enter a conversation because it won't be a dialogue, won't be a conversation or communication between two people it'll be a war between two armies. Mm-hmm. And that sets up the polarization thing. And again, breaks down conversation about this. So if you assume that reason is just an instrument of power, that power is, is what uses reason, 
in, in these debates, then you're going to, when you hear someone talk about racism and have a hard conversation about it, you're going to think, what's their angle? What's mm -hmm. this person trying to do? And should they, should this person have power? Not should this person's arguments be listened to, but let me see, does this person have power or should someone else have power? Mm -hmm. And that's, that makes the conversation impossible. But we don't have to, we don't have to agree that all reason is power. We mm -hmm. all know that two plus two equals four is just true, whether it gets you apples or not. So you want, just like emotivism, we want to avoid that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think, um, so where we're gonna go from here is uh, gonna sound maybe to some as, as a bit naive because I think the appeal of emotivism, the appeal of powerism is that it describes accurately our experience. Uh, and rarely do we have, um, at least in these kind of big conversations, the experience of disinterested debate or disinterested exchange. And so, you know, when we say, you know, it is possible, let's kind of go forward together hand in hand as we proceed towards our goal. It sounds silly, it kind of sounds Pollyanna-ish. Um, so we, we are gonna kind of contend for a real place that, that reason can occupy in this type of debate, but it's not just because we think that, that reason is um, desirable to all involved in the conversation or just uh, utterly undeniable in say, but rather like this is, this is a kind of gospel conviction that reason can be healed and elevated by grace uh, and that by the grace of Jesus Christ, it is possible to host hard conversations, which may seem impossible, but are possible. Mm -hmm. um, so this isn't just like a rationalist claim. It's something that's, uh, it's, that's, that's done within the context of a Christian community. Um, that's not to say. Yeah, I think um, it's important to say that what makes us human uh, is that we're rational animals, mm -hmm. at least traditionally. And if you deny the rationality of it through, through emotivism or powerism or, or anything, I think it's naive, then we're just animals. And animals don't reason with each other. Mm. So I, I think it's, so even though it sounds, it sounds Pollyannish and naive to say, let's just reason, let's sit down and reason together. I think it's deeply human. Mm. It's deeply as we're, as we're created in the image of God, as we'll talk about in a second, that reason is what we should be doing because it's what makes us distinct from animals. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, from the perspective of one studying Immanuel Kant and from the perspective of one studying Christology, I think I have, I have less confidence in reason you have great confidence in reason, but it's an encouragement to be to have more confidence in reason. <laughs> I mean, right. go to the local hospital. Like, you see what reason can do? I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. No, we no, can, no. We that's... can do all sorts of stuff, man. We can manipulate everything. Yeah, we can, as we pray on Thursday, week four, we can master the universe and unlock its secrets. We actually <laughs> pray for that. That's crazy. Anyway, so what we're going to do is talk about reason about how you can start rationally have a conversation about this. We talked about the hard part of it. We talked about the avoiding the impossibilities of it by denying reason. Now, what is it? What does a Dominican do best? Makes distinctions. Yeah. Right. So yeah, let's, let's do a little vocabulary, do a little grammar and see if we can. So yeah, exactly. So the first thing is because if you don't make, and people think, Oh, distinctions. Oh no. Look, if you don't make distinctions, you can't actually talk about the world. You know, yeah, like yeah. you don't distinguish between a, a horse and a blue whale, <laughs> then you're going to end up drowning. You know, mm. when you try to ride somewhere. Ah, uh, right, right. Naturally. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> distinctions are important. And one distinction, one set of distinctions here, I think is, is, is super important. Uh, I've got from actually a philosopher, of course, um, Jorge Grazia, um, who is a, a, a Latino philosopher at University of Buffalo. And he wrote a book called Surviving, Surviving Race, I think it's called. Um, and it's excellent. I highly recommend it to you. I'm not getting paid for that. Um, uh, but he, he wants to make a concept. He says, you need to make a distinction between race, ethnicity, and nationality. Okay. Race, ethnicity, and nationality. Walk us through it. And that, not that 
like anything, you know, when you make a distinction between plants and animals, there's always like gray cases, you know, is that is a hydra or, a, you know, sort of like a little single cell. What is that, guys? Is an amoeba, is he a plant? It's okay. So there's always some, but in general, these are distinct things. Race is a more genetic, a biological, physiological. So it's about not just descent, but also appearance, mm -hmm. uh, having characteristics of it, right? Ethnicity is the more cultural component, mm -hmm. more cultural component. So that you could have, for instance, we all know a, a, a friar who's Korean, but grew up in an Irish household. Mm -hmm. So he's Korean by race, but he's Irish by ethnicity. Uh, so ethnicity and race are different, although oftentimes they are together, of course, but you, they don't need to be. And then finally nationality. Nationality is like the legal propositional level of reality if you start stacking things mm -hmm. and that's based on law so a group of people living under and that need not have anything to do with race or ethnicity mm -hmm. in this debate his claim gracia's claim is that if you screw this up if you conflate combine and think that race and nation are together you're going to be making a fundamental conceptual mistake and therefore you're going to have bad arguments because you're going to be rightly decrying racism but in doing so you're going to actually be also unrightly decrying uh, Ameri America, America's laws or something. You're gonna be blaming laws for something that's not their fault. Hmm. So if you don't, and, and the same thing with ethnicity, people often on the, on the side, on well, what they call the racist side, you might hear, well, look, we're an ethnic nation in America. Hmm. And it's important to say, when we, yeah, there's ethnicities here and there might be a dominant ethnicity at a certain point in our founding, but Amer the constitution, floats free of ethnicity in terms of how you can step into that today. Mm -hmm. It might have been developed by a particular ethnicity, but you don't need to be that ethnicity to agree in principles of the rule of law and such. Mm -hmm. So the first thing about this conversation, which I think is really helpful, is just to be realized that people immediately assume race is the same as ethnicity, ethnicity mm -hmm. is the same as nationality, but they're actually three different levels and you want to be careful about how you talk about each one of those things. Mm -hmm. Now, hmm. another big term, Let's do it. of course, is justice. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. everyone here is, well, it's justice, social justice and all this sort of thing. Yeah. And of course, got to make some distinctions. Sure. So what, what distinctions do you need to make for justice? So the term social justice is something that you often hear in, in these types of conversations, uh, especially as those conversations are hosted within the Catholic Church. The term social justice really comes up in the mid 20th century uh, during the pontificate of John the 23rd, and it works its way into ecclesial documents like Pacham and Terrace, subsequently the Catechism of the Catholic Church downstream. Um, social justice is a kind of rough translation or application of the notion of legal justice or general justice. But before distinguishing that, what's justice in general? So justice is just uh, the constant and perpetual will to render another his due. So that's when we talk about it as a virtue. It's something that perfects the character of the individual and makes him or her to regard the other um, and to not only respect, but to render what that other is due. So there's a, there's a term of justice, which St. Thomas would refer to as uh, the use, you know, or eustum. It's a thing out there that impinges upon me to respond to it. And this is why we would kind of talk about rights and duties in association with justice. But like by virtue of the fact that you are born where and when you are born, you have certain claims, right, uh, to goods of the earth, and, and others are kind of bound by those claims to render them unto you. So by virtue of the fact that you are the son of, you know, Tom and Marcia, uh, you can, can hope to receive or, you know, expect to receive from them nourishment, right, education, love, 
um, all the different things that come with, with, with parenthood. Because you're born into this polity, because you're baptized into this church, etc. There are certain like rights and duties that flow back and forth. So we call that just when that social arrangement or that ecclesial arrangement or that family arrangement just when the person is given those things that he or she need to flourish. Um, so then justice is just rendering to another his or her due. It's a virtue that perfects the character of the person. And really what it concerns is something out there, irrespective of how I think about it, it's out there. So then zooming back out to general justice or legal justice, there are certain things that we owe to the common good. And this isn't to think about it in terms of like totalitarian terms. Sounds like communism. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm just an individual subjected to the totality. No, no, no. When we talk about a common good, we're talking about something transcendent. Uh, we're talking about something typically immaterial that distributes its goodness to a variety of people. So like the success of a sports team is something in which all of the players participate. Right? It's not diminished if you have another member of your roster, nor is it diminished because the fan base tux takes such delight in it. It's something that's, that's distributed to many, and it's not like it gets parceled out, you know, like a, like a pension fund. or it's a like shared, It's a shared, a shared good. Genuinely shared and not competitively so. So when we talk about justice, first we're thinking about in terms of this social justice or alternately legal or general justice, which regards the common good. Because we, as parts of the whole, ought to render to those greater, more transcendent goods the things that we owe, right? And so, so God, St. Thomas refers to as the, as the good of the whole universe, bonum commune totius universi. Um, but also we need to think about it with regard, with regard to the church, the polity, with regard to the family, with regard to these different intermediate institutions. And then from there, we can talk about particular justice, which is distributive justice on the one hand, which is what the state owes to different individuals, different citizens, and then commutative justice, which is the justice that obtains between two persons. And so it kind of happens along the way that that term social justice comes to basically mean distributive justice, mm -hmm. but that's a, a slip of the tongue. That oughtn't be the case. So I think that in this conversation, when we're talking about justice, we need to conceive of it in its full grandeur as a virtue, as something regarding what is due, kind of like um, part of, of these pre-existing relationships into which we are born, and that has these different faces or these different dimensions of general, particular, and under particular, distributive, and commutative. So it should be a consideration of what we owe, of what we can hope to receive, and how best to order those relationships in which justice can flourish. Yeah, so in this case, it's important that justice is a complicated notion. It's not simply like, I lost this, so you owe me this, and that's one form of it, but there's all these other levels and distinctions that make it rich, a rich concept. Again, where this is reason makes us rich as, as human beings and flourishing. Um, so those are some distinctions important. But then finally, for the unity's sake, we could say is that it's important when we enter into conversation with someone else, with any other human being, um, we have something in common, both in our beginnings and in our ends. And if we forget that, we might think of ourselves as us versus them again. Mm -hmm. But theologically, we have notions of our creation and our and our end that tie us all together, no matter who we are, as long as we're human beings. Um, do you want to talk a little about, about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, as we kind of wind down, um, just this final point that we are made from communion and for communion. You think about the, the fact that we are created by a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father begets the Son from all eternity. Father and Son breathe forth the Holy Spirit, who is the mutual love of Father and Son. Um, and at the heart of the deity, at the heart of the Godhead, there abides love, right? So there abides um, a perfect union. And our unity with God and with other people is, is premised on that union. So we, we, we come forth from the communion of God. God doesn't create us because he needs us. God creates us because he thought we might like it. 
to afford us the opportunity to share in or to participate in his communion. And the way that we come to God is by communion, right? So we have a common origin and we have a common end. We are all by virtue of the fact that we are created to his image, capable of receiving his self-revelation, of receiving the outpouring of himself. And we can know him with his own knowledge and we can love him with his own love. And so we have the hope that we who have come forth from God can also return to God. And that isn't just to say like, we're all made to the image of God, therefore we're all equal, um, as if to kind of like put forth a bland egalitarianism. It's gonna take different shapes, right? Um, which, you know, shouldn't uh, give lie to kind of rank injustice, but it's gonna take different shapes. And for us to kind of navigate that return to God, um, is to appreciate the different shapes in which it, you know, the Lord does make himself known, and then to incorporate that as part of return to him. Um, so when you think about like uh, Matthew 25, how the Lord says, uh, whatever you did for the least one of my brethren, you did for me. He doesn't say you did for one like me, or you did for one resembling me, or you did for one tenuously related to me. He says you did for me, right? And the idea is that in charity, we love God with his own love, and we love our neighbor with the same, with the recognition that this person is also from God and to God. And so by virtue of the fact that like the same Lord Jesus Christ died for all of us who had a sinful solidarity in Adam and now have a saved solidarity in Christ, we can hope that since the Lord can speak to all of our different experiences, right, that we can navigate the conversations among ourselves, mm -hmm. right, and host a real substantive dialogue that redounds into the praise of his glory. So it's like, if Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and if the gospel can be addressed to all persons yesterday, today, and forever, and if we are to be real agents in coming forth from and in returning to God, then there's something that we can say, even if small, even if modest, even if humble, right? It ought to be all of those things with the kind of helpful recognition of our limitations. It's still something, right? Yeah. And as a result of which, it's still worth saying. It is. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be less difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as we wrap up today in this, in this episode, uh, we talked about race in America and the fact that it's a hard, seemingly impossible conversation. Uh, hopefully we gave some resources and ideas that admitting, in a sense, kind of walk through a conversation, admitting that the difficult parts of it, that it's uncomfortable and it's okay if things are uncomfortable, especially if they're true about racism in America, but then not giving into the denial of reason such that we break down and don't have a conversation, but rather taking that hope since we're all united in Christ in this way, at least that's the Christian claim, is that it's not the color of your skin or your nationality or ethnicity that's most important, but your, your image of God status and your baptism and then your, your call by Christ to communion, full communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit in, in, that, in the kingdom. That with some distinctions made, uh, we can have a hope to have a conversation about it and again, it might be little, and it might even be a conversation just for yourself. I imagine we've all been doing that. I, <laughs> I talk to myself frequently, and this is a conversation I've had myself of affirming what is hard, denying what would make it impossible, and then making the proper distinctions, moving towards a conversion, in a sense, in charity. Mm. There you go. Seldom affirm, never deny, always distinguish. Always distinguish. A, a, a great Thomistic dictum. Not Same attributable dad. to St. Thomas, but attributable to someone. Uh, so with that, we'll take our leave. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of God's Planning. If you think that this could promote conversation among your friends, among your family, among those who are, um, yeah, at this stage, somewhat bewildered by the kind of current state of things, please do share it um, and uh, let us know how that conversation goes. We're always happy to receive comments uh, on podcast apps or on YouTube videos, uh, and, and we, can, we can reach out in turn. So thanks so much, and uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you again next time on God's Planning.
Thanks for listening to God's Plan, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.